The football celebration of innovators is not done for this week yet. No, sir. We talked about Pop Warner just a couple days ago on April 5th. Well, April 7th, it is the birth of Walter Camp, probably the biggest name in early football, the guy that innovated so much and really brought the game of football together, uh, deriving it from rugby and soccer into what we know today as American football. Now, we are going to go back a couple years into the vaults of Pigskin Dispatch and bring you an author that wrote a book on Walter Camp, Roger Tamte, as he sat down with us uh, probably two or three years ago to talk about his biography of Walter Camp and the legend himself. And it's debatable. Some say April 7th, some say April 17th. I think it's probably April 7th was Walter Camp's birthday, and that's what we're celebrating it here. But I wanted you to enjoy this great podcast with uh, Roger Tamte talking about the legend, Walter Camp in this Pigskin Vault Classic Rewind. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. And in this bonus edition of the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, we are bringing recognition to perhaps the most important man in American football history, Walter Camp who many in the last 100 years or so have called the father of American football. There is some controversy and some inconsistency somewhat as to what day camp was born on. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But as stated earlier on the Pigskin Dispatch, we're declaring this as Walter Camp Weekend, just the same on the Pigskin Dispatch. Uh, Helping us in this study of Walter Camp is an expert and an author of an excellent book, on the man titled Walter Camp, The Creation of American Football, authored by Roger R. Tampty, a scholar of early American football who studied camp for many years. Roger Tampty, welcome to the Pigpen. Thank you. It's good to be here. Oh, we, we are certainly glad to have you, Roger. And, uh, you know, first, uh, we'd like to just learn a little bit about you. Um, you know, what, what brought your interest into the game of football? Well, I've always been interested in football, actually. Uh, I grew up in, in Iowa, but my parents were from Minnesota. I was born in Minnesota, so I always had a little loyalty to Minnesota. Uh, I worked for 3M in, uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. I uh, was a patent attorney for them for um, oh, 30 some years plus some consulting years. When I uh, finished working for them, I wanted to work on some project, and I've always been interested in history, and and I was interested in the University of Minnesota football, which in the 1930s uh, had some national champions. Uh, Bernie Bierman was a coach, and there didn't seem to be a lot written about them, so I thought, well, I think I'd like to try and research that. And, and I got started on it, but um, uh, pretty soon I began to realize there was not any well-documented or a book about, uh, excuse me, about the creation of American football. And um, so I, I started to uh, investigate that and uh, became more and more interested and serious about it. I didn't immediately study camp, but 
pretty soon I realized that he was the key figure. And uh, so I began to uh, focus more on him. Yeah, he's a very interesting figure. Uh, I mean, I, I was kind of I had sort of a similar path. Uh, I used to be a football official and I would do some writing on the side for football officiating for some websites. And I got assigned to write on the football rules history. And I became, uh, you know, of course, football rules history, it sort of starts with Walter Camp and which we'll talk about here in a few minutes, some of his accomplishments, but yeah, the man is truly interesting in uh, his contributions to the game of football. You said, um, you know, you grew up in Minnesota and Iowa, you know, right in the, the Midwest, but, uh, and you, you know, learned a lot about camp through um, looking at uh, some of the early history. Now, what was some of your research that you did to uh, look up camp the, on the game of football? I don't remember the exact sequence of what happened, but um, I, I started off researching in um, Minnesota Historical Society library uh, but um, soon realized that if I was really going to study the creation of football, I needed to get closer to Yale and Harvard and Princeton, which were the so-called big three of that early early football. So I was I was really in retirement, and uh, I began to travel. Now I guess. I, here again, I don't know the remember the exact sequence, but I, I was working part time for 3M even then as a consultant, and I occasionally had to go to uh, D.C. where the patent office was to have a meeting at the patent office, and uh, I would um, I got so I would extend those trips on my dollar, <laughs> and uh, uh, I go over to the Library of Congress, and I began to. Um, uh, get some feel for information. I found uh, I found a couple early camp writings in their rare books collection. Uh, but it, but uh, I believe I believe it was um, something like 2003. I took a trip out to uh, I actually went to each of Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. And I suppose on that trip I realized that Yale had. Uh, the papers for Walter Camp, and they had uh, over 50 microfilm reels of papers that had been assembled very, very uh, carefully and thoroughly, and uh, I began to look at them. came home with what I had gathered, um, but soon decided I needed to go again. And um, I should say, you know, I, I really have no training in historical research, and uh, and maybe it was not as careful as I should have been because I would uh, I would learn things and I could remember that I'd read them, but I didn't take good enough notes to um, to always find them. So sometimes when I went back, I had to look things up again or look things over. But I've had the same issue happen to me, so don't worry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, I I made. Uh, I went to Harvard and Princeton maybe three four times, but I ended up going to Yale more than that. I suppose I spent more time at the University of Minnesota libraries. They, they had very good uh, newspaper and magazine collections covering the time period when, uh, when American football was being developed. So I would go there probably at least once a week and, uh, and try and dig through, through the newspaper files magazine files. I basically enjoyed the research. I, um, 
uh, it, it's drudgery in many times. And yet when you find something uh, that's new and, and you're pretty sure it's interesting, why that's exciting. And, uh, and it's kind of like exploring. You're an explorer out there trying to track down things. And so I, so I've, it turned out I enjoyed very much the process of um, researching. I, I, they, these were kind of my retirement years. So uh, my wife and I took a few trips uh, going south in the wintertime, and uh, we'd go places like Auburn. I found some material for my book in Auburn. A young professor in at Auburn really uh, instigated getting the the uh, students interested and able to play football. And uh, John Heisman came along as their coach. That was his first really major five year. He was there for five years. Uh, that that turned out to have some relevance to the book, uh, even even though it didn't have a lot to do with camp. But uh, anyway, I, so I mean, uh, I mean, I, I sort I, of lost track of your question. Now, what was uh, that's, that's all right. Uh, you you answered you answered it very well on your research. Now, you know, just digging in a little bit, I I want the the listeners to appreciate because you know I've I've also read a lot of. Uh, you know, Camp's put out a lot of uh, things in periodicals and he's written books. And I, I have a few copies of my own collection. Uh, but even people at the time, the, the, some of the terminology and things that uh, what we call today were called differently back then. So you almost have to it's almost somewhat interpreting a different language, uh, you know, going back 120, you know, 130 years ago, talking about the game of football. You know, as a matter of fact, the, the word football was uh broken into two words, the word foot and word ball early on. So it's, uh, I, I can appreciate your uh, research and being uh, studious because sometimes it is drudgery to, to read some of that and uh, try to incorporate it into today's language. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, you sort of come up with your own terminology too. Um, for example, we're going to talk about uh, uh, downs mm-hmm. and, and I, I have, I've come up with the term, Downs and distance uh, is really what, what the rule is about. But uh, uh, that's just my own idea. There are other, other ways to describe it, too. But uh, I, I guess one of the best examples of it, you know, is the, the word snapper back is what that was used quite a bit. And that, you know, we can translate that to snapper or to what we call today the center who snaps the ball. But the snapper back was one that sort of threw me for a loop a little bit. You know, just things like that. The, just yeah. it's it's a difficult uh, t- thing to research that time sometimes in the writings. So I I appreciate uh, your diligence on what you did because it's uh, I know what a chore it is. Um, now if we could uh, change gears a little bit, what you know in your studies, you know. We, we know we're going to talk a lot about camp, uh, the innovator and coach and foot game of football. But can you tell us a little bit about what kind of a person was Walter Camp? He was um, he grew up in uh, New Haven. His father was an elementary school principal and uh, he 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 attended the school where his father was the principal. <clears throat> and then and then went on to um, a private school in New Haven. He was always very interested in sports, I believe. Um, had a chance to see certain, um, if baseball came to New Haven, he, he had a chance to go see it, do things like that. He talks about wrestling. And uh, when he got to Yale, 
Well, he had played baseball at uh, the private school, uh, Hopkins Grammar School, and played baseball for them and played soccer. But at Yale, for example, he, um, besides football, he played varsity baseball. He uh, was in the first intercollegiate tennis tournament uh, yeah. as a, uh, on the doubles team representing Yale. He uh, competed in intramural events uh, in track and field. Um, so he had a very, very deep involvement in sports, but he was also a good student. I would say not at the very top tier, but he, he won uh, and he was recognized for his scholarship and um, was interested in writing. He'd been interested in writing ever since uh, uh, he was at Hopkins. Um, he was on their newspaper staff. He, he also wrote poetry, had some poetry published. And I would say he was also a very um, diligent person. I mean, he, he would undertake tasks and he'd follow through on them. And he was, during the development of football, as we might see as we talk further, he, um, he was very responsible and, and really carried the, the, uh, the effort, I think, in many ways. He was, uh, he was the only person who continued during those early years. I mean, most, most of them would come along for three years, maybe, and once they finished school, then they left. But, but he continued to be involved and, and uh, was very diligent and responsible. Uh, he was always characterized as quiet. Exactly what that meant, I don't know. I mean, he, he certainly... Um, he ended up being a coach and doing things like that. So, so he could he could speak when he needed to speak, but uh, but he was kind of in the background and quiet. It's um, always the quiet ones you have to watch out for, right? <laughs> well, something's going on, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I believe, if I read correctly, he was um, got after school. Was still coaching at. Uh, at Yale, but he became involved in a family business uh, in New Haven. Well, um, yeah, he when he finished school, uh, he graduated from undergraduate school four years, and then attended medical school for three years. He did not graduate from medical school, however. But when he finished uh, the spring of '83, he uh, he said that he wanted to catch on in business. He got a job. Uh, for a clock company or a watch company in New York City. Connecticut was very prominent in the clock and watch industry. And, um, but he, he didn't stay with them very long because um, uh, graduate, some of the graduates who were very much believers in, in him and what he could do for Yale and, and uh, student athletic associations uh, offered him a job at Yale to be in charge of all the athletic interests at the school. Now, in those days, uh, it was the students and the graduates who were interested. There's not a lot of interest by the officials at school. So he, he worked that year in that position and, um, and really, you can tell, hoped that Yale would hire him to continue that job uh, as, a, as a regular Yale official. But 
Um, they didn't. The Yale president, I don't think, thought it was the right thing for uh, And so when he, when he uh, in 84, after he'd worked uh, at Yale for a year in sports, he um, began work for the New Haven Clock Company. It, he, uh, they had an official name, Camp, but he was not related to Walter. And it was it was uh, it was it was a stock investment company, but uh, Camp continued there. He went to work in New York for about three years as a in the sales capacity. Came back to New Haven and was sort of you'd probably call him the sales manager. And then um, in the early 1900s, he was named uh, chief executive president of the company. And he, he was the president of the New Haven Clock Company, which was a worldwide company uh, for about 20 years. You talk about him uh, having to travel quite a bit, you know, go to New York City. And I think uh, by train, New York City is probably an hour away from uh, New Haven. So quite a bit of traveling. So coaching a football team uh, can be quite difficult. But he had some help, I believe, uh, from his wife. If you could go into that a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, it was common among uh, former players to go back and help their teams after they graduated. And he did some of that. Uh, but in 1888, the captain of the Yale football team, who obviously was an admirer, had confidence in what the camp could do, asked him to really take full charge of their team. And... Um, it so happened that uh, Camp had just married Alice. It was the name of his wife. And, uh, uh, Graham, Graham Sumter, was it, I believe? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know her name very well, but I can't come up with it right now. But anyway, um, uh, Walter was, um, uh, she, they, they got married in July of 88, I believe. And Walter started that fall as coaching the, the team. Um, they, um, and he, uh, I don't think he had a lot of money. He, he lived in a house where, uh, right in back of where his parents lived, he and, uh, he and Alice, uh, of course he, uh, was working for the clock company, so he couldn't always be at practice, but she went in his place and, um, uh, that's kind of hard to believe, but but it, it's quite well documented. So she went out there, walked the sidelines, and then took notes, I guess, and in the evening would uh, talk to Walter about what she had seen. And and uh, uh, the uh, the players got to like her. They called her Mrs. Walter, uh, <laughs> and she must have done a pretty good job. Then in the evening, they, uh, the captain would come over, and often some players would come over to their house and they'd talk about uh, practice steps they needed to take. Or, um, I don't know how, how much that happened. I, I assume he was at practice a fair amount, but uh, I'm sure there were a lot of times when he couldn't, couldn't attend practice. So, so she went in his stead. 
Yeah. Can you, can you imagine uh, what most wives uh, today would do if uh, the husband said, Hey, can you go down to the football practice and take some notes? So I'm going to go to work. I know my <laughs> wife would probably throw a couple of shoes at me or something if I asked a question like that. So she must have been very understanding. Yeah. Right. Very supportive. Uh, okay. So he, he had a lot of help. He had a, a really uh, deep roots into his, um, into the town of New Haven and Yale. Um, now, Let's get into maybe some of his uh, contributions and, and innovations. What are uh, some of the, the big innovations that camp brought to, to football? Well, I think the, um, the first big one was the uh, American scrimmage rule. And there's a uh, uh, camp never, never said that he was the inventor of that rule. Uh, although I think most writers uh, presume he, he was. But uh, what happened there, I guess, was, um, you know, American football was derived from rugby. Uh, Harvard was introduced to rugby by McGill College in Montreal in the early early 1870s. Harvard challenged Yale, so Yale played them, and uh, they played them in 1975, which was kind of, I guess, uh, not really a very clear cut as to the rules they were using but in 1876, they, used, they played again, and there they used the regular rugby rules, pretty much. And um, after uh, other schools got interested also. So uh, at the end, in the fall of 1876, uh, Columbia, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale formed the Intercollegiate Association, Football Association, and they adopted the regular rugby rules as their as as the rules they would play by rugby scrimmage rule which i i'd like to read sure it says a, a scrimmage takes place when the holder of the ball being on the field of play puts it down on the ground in front of him and all who have closed around on their respective sides endeavor to push their opponents back and by kicking the ball drive it in the direction of the opposite goal line. I think of this as, as kind of a brute force type of game. Um, they were, uh, they're, in, they're intended to clash in the scrum and uh, physically fight their way through that uh, uh, scrum and, and kick, uh, each kicking opposite directions. But um, it, it, I think, was kind of a rough, a rough uh, uh, situation they adopted that rule. The Americans adopted that rule, but um, they really didn't like it very much. Um, and they, they um, you know, it, rugby had been um, in place in um, England for many years. I've, I've got a novel that was based on, at rugby, rugby school, Tom Brown School Boys, it's called. And they have a rugby game described in there. And they describe uh, the scene uh, of, a, of a scrimmage. Uh, here come two of the bulldogs. In they go straight to the heart of the scrimmage, bent on driving the ball out the other side. Americans, when they started playing that game, sometimes the, the varsity scrimmaged against the scrubs and they, the varsity was bigger and they could drive it through the scrubs. And so the scrubs began to think of something else and they began to kick the ball sideways. And eventually they began to kick it backwards. Uh, they also didn't like the um, rugby method because 
when the two teams were clashing in the scrum and bouncing the ball back and forth, it often bounced out in unpredictable directions. And Camp said um, that that conflicted with the Americans' idea of order and preparation. Uh, and now, you know, the Americans uh, had not didn't have this history in rugby and weren't committed to it. So they began to to try other things. And one of the things they tried was to to kick the ball backwards and hope one of their backs would get it and run around the scrum. And, and that uh, became uh, effective. At some point, what Camp uh, wrote was an adventuresome spirit, developed a very vigorous backwards kick. Uh, he was able to place his foot on the ball and uh, kick it backwards. And I'm assuming this was in the, the tangle of a, a rugby scrum. He somehow got his foot on the ball and was able to kick it out quickly so that um, the, uh, the collegians began to call it a snapback. I guess it was just, it was fast enough and quick enough that they used the word snapback on it. Uh, however, the ball was kicked and it was rolling and bouncing on the ground. So uh, 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 one of the backs gradually would move closer and closer behind the guy who was kicking to um, be able to uh, grab the ball before the opponents came through the line and, and, uh, and grabbed it instead. And they began to call him the quarterback. And they, uh, I think they chose that kind of just based on the, the location that he was closer to the line than the halfback who was. Who was <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, the American style scrimmage, or what I call the snapback scrimmage, um, developed out of that situation. 19, 18, 1879 and 1880, really the, the Americans uh, deleted the rugby scrimmage lines of, of uh, coming together and, and attempting to force their way through. Uh, and instead substituted uh, other words, which, um, again, I'd like to read this. Um, this rule was introduced in the 1880 scrimmage, in the 1880 uh, rule book. A scrimmage takes place when the holder of the ball, being in the field of play, puts it on the ground in front of him. All those words are exactly the same words from the rugby uh, language. But then this, this is the new part and puts it in play when onside by kicking or snapping it back. The man who first receives the ball from a snapback shall be called a quarterback. Those seem simple words, but they accomplished a revolution. Uh, rugby's uh, brute force, forward kicking, scrimmage battles were replaced with ordered play planned and thought out in advance. That happened because uh, they knew who was going to kick the ball back. So that team, that team was on offense. Whereas in rugby, both teams were in the same status. I mean, you're on offense if you had the ball, but if the other team got the ball, then you were on defense. But in this case, they started the scrimmage with one, play, with one team in charge of the ball. 
And uh, so that team could know that it was going to be able to handle the ball and uh, could put in effect a plan that they had practiced and, uh, and obviously changed the whole nature of the game. It's not clear who, um, who wrote the, that, those words, although it's, he, Camp is commonly thought of as having written those words. What we know for sure is that he wrote a manual of instruction to go along with the rules. Uh, that manual, uh, 11 pages of pretty detailed description, was part of the 1880 rule book. And uh, obviously he had given this a lot of thought and, uh, and probably the, Yale had practiced it. That became um, the American scrimmage rule. I mean, just stop for a second and think about, I mean, how important that development is, you know, basically, um, you know, the invention of the quarterback or creation of the quarterback and creation of play calling, you know, the plans that you're talking about play calling for, for offenses and you know, subsequently defenses could call plays. So that, that's just the, the whole, probably the, the main source of interest for the game of football is just that, uh, that give and take and those, you know, one play, uh, one team scheme against the other with their plays trying to gain an advantage. And I mean, that's gigantic in the, in the game. Yeah, it is. It, uh, and it still has its effect today. Camp later, um, quite a few years later, the, the game was growing more and more popular. And he listed some reasons why he thought the game was popular. And the, the first one he listed was um, the fact that the game is constantly developing. With, it's always open to new methods. And, and, and that all arises from this fact that uh, it's a game of planning. And um, the plans, uh, uh, there's quite a open slate of possibilities and, and they keep developing and developing and developing. And, uh, and uh, it's responsible for what, uh, what American football has become. So yes, it is. It was a very um, crucial and important rule. Now, however, I think uh, you also asked about the Downs rule, and and I think that one um, uh, is a very important rule. Also, this was definitely a camp invention. Um, the first purpose was um, to c- correct a flaw in the 1880 scrimmage rule. The, um, nothing in that rule limited a team in, in the number of possessions they could have. And um, so teams, uh, an inferior team would, uh, would stall, would not really try to move the ball forward. They would try simply to hold onto the ball so that the other team could not score. Um, and, uh, and that way they at least would not lose. But uh, those games were called block games. And uh, the, the Americans tried a while to, to um, overcome that problem, but they didn't, they didn't really solve it. And so in uh, April of 82, eight, April 1882, they had an emergency rulemaking meeting. Um, all four schools sent, uh, each sent three delegates. It was the largest uh, rulemaking meeting they'd had at that point. 
Uh, Camp was in uh, medical school, but he was a delegate for Yale. And he came in with a proposed rule reading, if in three consecutive downs, a team does not advance the ball at least five yards, they must give up the ball to the opposite side on the spot of the last down. Uh, very familiar ideas. Mm -hmm. It was three downs, five yards. But um, today, you know, we think of that as kind of a natural or uh, logical thing. But when Camp proposed it in 82, it really wasn't. I mean, uh, if you think of the fact that um, putting a limit on the number of downs, which they didn't have, but, but also providing a way to extend that limit, uh, that was a new idea and, and a, a really a new creation. Conditioning the extension on how many yards the offensive team achieved within a certain down number of downs was also a new idea. And um, using physical measurements to, to measure the, the distance a team had moved in three downs was a very new idea. And um, the, uh, the, the, the other delegates were all opposed to this idea. They, um, they said, uh, you'll need a surveyor on the field to make it work, or constant delays will surely occur. Uh, the referee will be given superior powers and face impossible decisions. Uh, and this is kind of an interesting sidelight, but Camp answered them by suggesting that the field be marked with lines five yards apart. And uh, the other delegates laughed and said, uh, it'll look like a gridiron. <laughs> and as far as I know, that's the first time that word was used that you know has become so common in describing a football field. Um, finally, the chair of the meeting, who was also opposed to the idea, but he had worked with Camp enough to have some confidence in him, uh, obtained a compromise. He says, uh, and he pr persuaded them to enact the rule on the condition that in the fall, if it didn't work, they would, uh, would cancel the rule. Well, when the fall came, the play was so clearly improved that no effort was made to kill the rule. Um, there, there was, first of all, an absence of block games. But more importantly, the game had been made more interesting and compelling. Each down was important. Players had an exciting new focus. Each down became important um, to obtain the required yardage. Viewers were knew what the what was at stake and were more interested. Sat on the edge of their chairs, wondering, well, "Will they make these yards?" <laughs> um, East Down really told a story with winners, losers, and sometimes heroics. So, um, anyway, I, I, Camp Camp always said I, that that is the most important rule in our game. And uh, I think he was uh, he was trying to he was being sincere. Um, the um, it turned out that um, in 1912, the the first historian of the rule, Park Davis, um, 
wrote um, that Camp's 82, 1882 Downs and Distance Rule has made American football preeminent over all other games of strategy and prearranged tactics. So um, other people were, were thinking it was an important rule also. Yeah, definitely a big contribution. I, I can't imagine going to a game and uh, watching one team have the ball the entire game and just staying in the same place. That, that would be kind of boring. I think the game probably would have died out if uh, yeah, it stayed it, that way. They were worried about that. That's why uh, they had an emergency meeting of 12 people. <laughs> Because they really were worried that it could uh, die out. Yeah, Camp, that's a brilliant idea he had. And, you know, who, and there was no other thing like it. You know, nobody had ever seen, like you said. So that's, right. that's really yeah. interesting. That's right. Now, now if we could, uh, you know, if we could fast forward to maybe the, the 1904, 1905, uh, what the temperature of football was and uh, what was about to happen and how Camp uh, sort of it was involved in that. Uh, the whole thing with the, um, you know, there was, was no passing game at that point in time. Um, in- well, yeah, in, um, it was always a, a, a dangerous game, of course, but, but it became, um, the, there came a time when there were a number of injuries and a number of deaths. Uh, the public became upset about it and um, pushed for some sort of change. Camp, um, I guess, you know, um, John Heisman had written some letters and claimed that he had suggested the idea of forward passing to camp. I never found any letters from Heisman in the camp papers, so I don't know just what happened. But camp was not too interested. He, he really, uh, they began to have um, in 1900, Six. I, I, you know, I haven't really looked this up recently, but uh, I think 1906 was the first year that the committee rules committee met, and um, a number of the members of the committee advocated forward passing, a very limited kind of forward passing. Uh, but camp camp opposed. However, in and um, I think maybe they maybe they did start in 1905. Uh, in 1906, they did pass uh, the rule committee uh, over camps and others' objections. Did uh, put in rules allowing passing. I think they also in that year increased the downs the yards that had to be made in three downs. It was still three downs, but they increased it to 10 yards. Now, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt gets mixed into this story also. He was, um, he was a, a friend of camps and a great admirer of camps. And, you know, I have not gone back and really refreshed myself on these, this story, and I don't think I, I, I want to take it on, but it's a really uh, interesting story. Uh, Roosevelt eventually being, became persuaded that camp was wrong and that there needed to be a change. And uh, he, he did some things to help that process along uh, so that eventually, uh, in 1912, 
a quite liberal passing rule was passed. Again, camp opposed. Um, they did at that point increase the number of downs to four. So in 1912, I think it was four downs to make 10 yards. But at the end of the 1912 season, Camp um, uh, wrote in, uh, you know, he had started a guide that contained the rules. It had become, it had become taken over by Spalding. He, Camp was the editor and, and a main writer for this guide. And he wrote in that guide that 1912 has proved the effectiveness of rulemaking and, uh, and uh, was very um, complimentary of forward passing. I, I think that's an, another insight into camp that uh, although he had opposed vigorously and the end he had lost, but he realized, I think he would, had been wrong and that uh, forward passing was going to be a very important part of the game. And, uh, and it was, of course, and, and, and he used it. He used forward passing uh, in his own coaching at Yale. I believe uh, it was even to the extent, you know, back going back to the 1906 after, you know, Roosevelt sort of put the hammer down and told, you know, told the uh, intercollegiate rules committee, they had to make some changes to make the game safer institution of the forward pass, but camp and some of the proponents that did not or opponents of the forward pass uh, put into some strict rules that first year. Like uh, if you uh, threw a forward pass and it was incomplete, it was turned over on downs like a recovered fumble. Uh, yeah. you know, so you, you couldn't pass any more than five yards downfield. Some really crazy rules that we wouldn't even recognize today. Uh, but it's, I'm glad to hear, you know, 1912 that, you know, camp saw the value of the forward pass and, uh, you know, basically said, Hey, you know what, you guys are right. This is uh, great for the game. And you know, just like you said, in, in that 1912 rule book of uh, Spalding handled. So yeah, that's some uh, great stuff there. Let's fast forward another decade here. You know, camp continued to go to the rules uh, committee meetings that they were held annually, sometimes a couple times every year. You know, he was extremely dedicated to the rules. Uh, and if you could take us maybe up to that 1925 uh, rules convention, his last uh, committee that he attended. World War One came along during this time also. Um, uh after the 1912 meeting and agreement, there were some rule changes, but, but, um, but within two or three years, they had reached a point that they, they made almost no changes to the rule book. That was really a quite a change. I, I mean, uh, almost every year until that time, there had been some fairly significant rule changes. But Camp said um, the game is working well at this point, and we should uh, let it continue. And and so it did. After the war, um, during the war, there were a number of uh, Army and Navy uh, football teams. So people got exposed to football that way. They also got some pent-up demand because the, uh, some of the schools stopped playing football. So at the end of the war, by 1920-21, the game had really uh, 
really uh, increased in number a lot. And really during, during the 1920s, a lot of the major uh, football uh, stadiums were built. Um, but anyway, uh, leading up to 1925, I don't think there was anything really earth-shaking that was going to be held at that rulemaking meeting. But uh, Camp had pretty much attended all of the, all of the meetings, and he, he went. He was 65 years old, I think, at that time. And um, they, they met together on Friday night and um, had some discussions, uh, but planned to have further meetings the next day. Uh, they all went home to their hotel room, and uh, on Saturday morning, the committee met, but the usually prompt camp was not there. And um, after an hour or two, the chairman of the committee sent uh, a couple of people to go look for camp. And uh, they got the uh, hotel manager to open up the door and they found that camp had died during the night, apparently at peace in, in, in his bed. And um, so it, it's kind of, it's very ironic. Here, this man who gave his life to football really um, died during the night between two sessions of the rulemaking committee. Obviously quite a shock for his wife. That was, that was the end of uh, Walter Camp's participation in the rulemaking. You know, I, I always, uh, maybe I'm over-romanticizing the, uh, the situation, but you know, I always like to think of it, you know, he, he accomplished so much and went through so much controversy to, to keep this game of football. You know, first of all, to get it off, help get it off the ground and playing it and, you know, adapting rules and adopting rules and, you know, going to all these meetings and practices and go, going through the whole uh, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, summons to the White House and the forward pass, uh, you know, controversies. And he overcame all that. And football in the 1920s is sort of settled down, like you said, and there wasn't a whole lot of innovations taking place at that time, at least in the major rule innovations. But he was sort of, you know, goes to that, that Friday night meeting um, and you said how he died peacefully. I always like to envision it as he was sort of at peace with the game of football and, you know, to, to be a football icon, to go out at a football rules meeting. There's just something about that that's astonishing and ironic, like you said, but also, you know, almost a, a, in a romantic sense that uh, brings nostalgia to, to the event. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just, uh, <laughs> you know, he died doing the thing he loved, I guess, is a better, best way to say it. Yeah, there's a, um, you know, Grantland Rice, um, Walter Camp had, uh, had presented an All-American team in uh, Collier's Magazine for many years. And when Camp died, uh, Rice took that job over. But Rice was kind of a poet, was, was a poet. As um, he wrote a poem that I I always uh, thought was um, if, if I can if I can read it oh please do um, a few months after Camp died Grantland Rice uh, wrote this poem when he I think he was uh, uh, perhaps naming the next All America team 
Rice assumed Camp still remembered those players that he had named in the past and that he occasionally thought about them, imagined them as they marched along the skyline of memory. As they marched by, how often must have come to him the memory of the great battles which brought them fame, battles in rain and snow, in sun and shadow, the flying tackle and the savage line thrust, the forward wall braced for the shock, the graceful spiral careening against a sky of blue and gray, the long run down the field, the goal line stand, the forward pass, the singing and cheering of great crowds, young and old America gathered together on a golden afternoon with bands playing and banners flying. It may have been in the midst of such a dream that the call to quarters came and taps was sounded as the great night came down the field. Wow. I uh, like that. So yeah. I put that in my book. It's been yeah. it's repeated it, uh, more than once, I know. But. <laughs> it's a beautiful tribute by Grantland Rice uh, to the great man, Walter Camp. All right. Um, I guess this is a question. Now, we've sort of encompassed the whole uh, football life of Walter Camp, but you being an author and being so engrossed in his life, if you could travel back in time, if I, I said, said, Roger, here's a time machine and you can go back anytime at any point in camp's life and either witness an event or ask a question of camp, what might that be? Well, you know, um, one idea that, that comes to my mind, I've always wondered what goes on, went on in these rulemaking meetings. I mean, uh, camp was apparently persuasive, but not a um, dictatorial person or a, uh, a persuasive person. And I, I, I thought I'd like to sit in on one of those early rulemaking meetings and uh, <laughs> And see what, what what the manner of discussion was, and you know there are a lot of there there would be a lot of a lot of times that might be of interest, but uh, that's one that comes to my mind. Yeah, I mean, just you saying that it put, sort of put the picture in my mind. I'm picturing you know, a room you know full of uh, cigar smoke in the air. You know, it's yeah. probably we're probably waving our hands trying to clear the air a little bit. And maybe what you said earlier with the, describing camp as sort of a quiet person, maybe he was almost like that old E.F. Hutton commercial. You know, he didn't say much, but when when Walter Camp spoke, everybody listened. You know, maybe that's the instance that we could. Uh, maybe look upon of what happened, you know, but that is, that would be a good question. Now, uh, appreciate you coming on today with us, Roger. Um, now, why don't you uh, tell us the title of your book and maybe where uh, some of our listeners could purchase your book. Um, the title is uh, Walter Camp and the creation of American football. And, um, you know, I know that Amazon uh, has the book available, I, I, but I don't actually know other places. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that if you went to a local bookstore and asked for the book, they would could get it, would get it. Um, but that, that, that's all I know. Okay. 
So uh, Amazon, I mean, that's a very common thing, place where everybody's buying books these days, uh, the way they sort of the way the Internet is uh, taking over the marketplace. But again, that book is Walter Camp and the Creation of American Football by Roger R. Tampty. Uh, make sure you check it out at Amazon. Uh, get a copy of it. Uh, it's a great piece of uh, writing on a great man in American football history. And it's a very interesting read and uh, one that everybody should have uh, in their library. And uh, Roger, we very much appreciate you joining us on what we're calling Walter Camp Weekend. I know we're a little bit controversial on uh, the date, but uh, uh, still we're celebrating the man's life uh, sort of in the appropriate time of year, the appropriate month, let's say, <laughs> to uh, make sure he is paid tribute to for his great contributions. Um, well, thank you for asking. I've, I've enjoyed participating. And, uh, and I, you know, I feel um, that camp is someone who uh, we need to know better. And um, is very much the father of American football. And, and there should be some times when we recognize uh, what, what that contribution is, because the game is obviously very important in, in the United States. Well, sir, you've certainly shed some light with us here today and in your book, and uh, we are all much uh, wiser and more informed for it. And uh, we thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. We'd like to thank you for listening to this celebration of Walter Camp with Roger Tampty's interview. And we'd like to thank Roger for uh, joining us and participating in this and his great book and sharing his knowledge with us and the University of Illinois publishing company that connected us with Roger and uh, shared that great book with us. And to everybody, till tomorrow, have a great gridiron day. That's all the football history we have today, folks. Join us back tomorrow for more of your football history. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.